welcome everybody again to the next episode of Dollars with Decker. I appreciate you guys all tuning in right now, um, right here on The Answer AM 590. Um, as a continuation of last week where we went over why owning a home or owning a rental property is so important because of a massive, massive shortage of affordable housing being built. We're going to take a continuation this week on going over some different strategies on how to actually buy a rental home, how to evaluate a rental home, and how to actually get some of the cash to be able to do so. As I went over last week, with only one out of every 20 houses now being built as an affordable home compared to nearly just two decades ago where you were having four out of every 10 houses being built as an affordable home, we've seen a massive decrease in this, mainly due to the fact that there's no kind of subsidies or no reason for home builders to build affordable housing. Think about it. If you're going to put your time towards something and all your effort and the cost of permitting and the cost of labor and the cost of materials, why are you going to be wasting that time building an asset that you can make one-tenth or you know one-fifth of the amount of profit when you could actually go ahead and build a house that is over the median house price? And because of that, we're having a major, major shortage of affordable housing, which is going to continue to force individuals to go ahead and continue to rent. Now, some of the metrics I want to go over today specifically is kind of really taking a, an overview of exactly what to be expected in terms of demographics. And so everybody can understand it really doesn't matter outside of two very specific variables what can actually influence the real estate market. So people like, like a lot of times of, oh, they have feelings about this or that. And they think, you know, there's certain political states or there's, you know, emotions that they think will really affect, oh, house prices are just, they're just too high. You know, they're just gotten too hot. They're just going to crash. Well, at the end of the day, let me just tell you, every investment decision needs to be made. Basically, you need to do your own research. It's very, very important. And you need to look at the data. Data doesn't lie. Human beings lie. Emotions will trick you, but data doesn't lie. And there's only two variables that ever affect a real estate market. The first is demographics and the second is interest rate. And what do I mean by demographics? Very simply put, how many people are currently in the market and how much supply is in the market? And is the demand greater than the supply? Well, if that's the case, then we are going to have upward pressure on house prices. And then we're an interest rate perspective. It's a very psychological number. When interest rates for a primary home break four and a half percent, as we saw very in the third and fourth quarter of 2008, we see a major pullback. Why is that a, a psychological number that triggers people? I don't know, but I know that that is the number. So right now with interest rates still in the high twos to low three percent, we are seeing still a massive, massive amount of individuals being able to want to actually purchase properties because their rents in many cases are far more than what their mortgage payment would be putting 3% or 5% down. And for investors that are looking to actually pull some money out of the stock market because they're kind of concerned over the stock market and some of these crazy PE values or price earnings ratios that these stocks are trading at, they're looking to actually kind of put that and put that in as an inflationary hedge. And as I went over last week, why real estate is such a great inflationary hedge, simply put is, when money is in your bank and that money in the bank account is decreasing in value because the dollar is buying you less of what it did a year ago, then you need to put it in something that is going to outpace inflation. So for an example, if I have $20,000 just currently sitting in my bank account 
and I go and I see what I $20,000 can buy me today, let's say, you know, to going to the store and, you know, a can of Coke, as I said last week, is $1, I can buy 20,000 cans of Coke. Now I go one year in the future and I go to that store and Coke is $1.10, well, guess what? I can't buy 20,000 cans of Coke. I can only buy 18,000 cans of Coke at that time. So my dollar has lost its value. Can of Coca-Cola did not go up in value. It's that the purchasing power of the dollar drop value. So that's why it's so important to use money in your bank accounts and put it in an asset that you can leverage that will outpace inflation. Meaning with $20,000, I can go ahead and I can control a $200,000 asset, meaning I can put 10% down and buy a second home that's $200,000 and I only need 20 grand to put down. So I'm getting every value increase of that asset of $200,000 with only having to put in $20,000 of my own money. That's the power of leverage in securing an asset. That's very, very important to understand. So let's get into some of the metrics. So let's let's talk about, so what, what are these demographics telling us? And one thing that's very, very important to know to understand demographics is you gotta look at birth rates. And so one of the things that a lot of people do not realize is, is birth rates, the amount of individuals born during any particular year. We saw them, basically the baby boomers generation was the largest generation that has ever existed. And that was followed up by a generation in which I was born, which I was born in the very, very early 80s. And that generation following it had a massive decrease. There was about 20% less individuals born my generation than the baby boomer generation. Then now that is followed up by the millennial generation and the millennial generation, which basically are, are the birth years, depending on the metric you look anywhere between 1982 and about 1999, kind of that birth year period of time had a major increase. And in particular, there was a six year window of time where individuals that were born between 1988 and 1994 had a major increase in the individuals being born during that period of time. To give you an idea on how much of an increase, there was on average about 4.8 million babies born every year between 1988 and 1994. And why is that number important? Well, that's between about 600,000 and a million more babies born per year than that same six-year window period of time just 10 years prior. And why is that so crucial right now? Is because the average age of an individual that is reaching home buying age is about 33 years old in the United States today. Well, guess what? Do the math. Somebody that was born in 1988, how old are they in 2021? They're 33 years old, right? And so by being 33 years old today and reaching the average home buying age, that is a very, very important reason because that is additionally right now, that's basically a million more people reaching first time home buying age in 2021 than reached that home buying age in let's say 2011. So what is the home ownership rate? Well, depending on the county you look at, but overall in the nation, we're looking at somewhere in the range of between about 61 and 65% home ownership that we typically experience. Now, this has been decreasing a little bit, one, because of obviously COVID, and two, because of the supply of houses. So what that means is, is we are reaching every single year for the next six years, 4.5 to 4.8 million individuals every year for the next six years that are going to be reaching that home buying age. So using a metric of just about, let's just call it 60% of roughly those individuals, we are dealing with ourselves about 3 million people per year that need to buy a home every single year for the next six years. That is a major, major, major increase in the demand for houses. 
And what's going to happen is, is one, not only are more people going to rent because that they can't get into affordable housing, but we also need a large number of additional houses being built for these individuals to buy. And with construction across the United States being suppressed. So to give you an idea, we were normally delivering somewhere in the neighborhood of between about 1.2 and 1.6 million new single family homes being delivered every single year through the 80s, 90s, and 2000s until the housing collapse hit. And when the housing crash hit, basically in 2008, we saw a massive decrease in the number of houses being built. Why? Because one, we had an oversupply because we were building so many houses through the 2000s. And yet at that time, the population, as I just talked about, was significantly less than the baby boomer generation. So because the baby boomer generation was so much lower, we had so much speculation. We were building just as many homes that we were needed to be building during the baby boomer generation, which was a much larger generation. But guess what? When you have approximately 600,000 people every single year less needing to buy a home because of a smaller generation, but we're not decreasing the amount of houses being built, the only reason why we were able to absorb those is there was massive, massive speculation. To give you an idea, just in the years 2004, 2005, 2006, 40% of all the houses being bought were being bought for speculation purposes, meaning being bought by investment properties. Well, guess what happens when you have a turn and you have four out of every 10 houses being built for investment property purchases? Guess what? We have a major, major, major problem. So we had this massive oversupply of houses reaching about 3.7 million houses for sale in about 2007, 2008. Well, we don't need that many houses. We only needed about 1.2 to 1.3 million houses per year. So what happened is we stopped building construction. And what happened is, is all that surplus for all those houses was there on the market and supply. And we all know with foreclosures that happened and you know the massive amount of foreclosures that we were seeing because we had oversupply, we had overspeculation because people, when hard times hit, guess what? What's the first thing they let go? Their investment property. They aren't gonna let go of their family house. That's the last thing they're gonna let go. So we had all this supply both coming from overbuilding as well as all these foreclosures. And so that supply was able to kind of bring enough to the market that even though we were only building about half as many houses, in 2010, as we built in 2000, and in 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, all those years, we were only building half as many houses as what we had been building prior. We were only delivering between about 400 and 600,000 houses per year in new construction, so significantly less. Well, the world was not looking to the future and saying, hey, you know what? Hmm, there's a lot of babies that were born between 1988 and 1994. A whole lot of babies. Shoot, almost a million babies more per year. Well, no, they weren't. So what ended up happening was, is in all of a sudden, about 2019-ish, we started to seeing, huh, we're not seeing that many houses like come onto the market. You know, houses are getting multiple offers. And then this really culminated in 2020 when COVID hit, because what happened was, is any houses that new houses that were coming on the market were being slowed down because of COVID shutdown. And all of a sudden, these birth rates hit the market and these birth rates started coming. And all of a sudden, I went on social media and said, hey, we're going to have house prices go up insane amounts this year because we're going to have a major supply shortage. And I got so much hate all over social media. I got, Brian, you're just pushing, you're peddling houses because you just want to sell mortgages and this and that. And I said, it's not about that at all. Housing moves in two factors. One, demographics. Two, interest rates. Interest rates are low. 
We know what demographics are because of these birth rates coming in, massive shortage in affordable housing, even more shortage in supply. Now, if all of you guys are kind of tuning in right now, I'm kind of walking you guys and setting you guys up for the table of what's going on in the housing market today. What, what is causing this supply shortage? What is causing, where are all these buyers coming from? How is it that, you know, Real estate is still going to be a great investment, even though we've seen 15% price appreciation year over year. We've seen house prices go up as much as 30%, you know, over the last two to three years. And the reason is, is because there's only two things that affect the housing market. One, demographics, two, mortgage interest rates. And so what basically happened is, is all these birth rates started to come in. And with these birth rates, we saw all these new buyers starting to move into the market. And they are moving out of mom and dad's house. They basically are having some life change. Also, two people are going to be moving. And one of the things I found very, very interesting in all of that is this. Everybody said that everyone was leaving California, right? Everyone said, hey, everyone's fleeing their states. And really, give you guys an idea, outside of the Bay Area, outside of New York City, believe it or not, 80% of everybody that moved, okay, over the last, since COVID, so all the exodus, 80% moved within 100 miles of where they were previously living. What did they do? They moved from metro areas and they moved out to what they call the fringe markets. They wanted a little bit more room. They were able to work remote. So do not believe all this nonsense that everyone's fleeing every single state. 80%, eight out of every 10 people moved 100 miles from where they were living in their metro market. And being that we have about 4.8 million individuals reaching home buying age every single year for the next six years, we are going to have a major, major demand increase for both individuals moving out of apartments that now they are getting married and they want to buy a home. But if there's not an affordable home to be able to buy, guess what? They're going to rent and rents are going to continue to skyrocket. As I mentioned last week, there was 15 of the major metro markets last year alone. That's a 15% or more rent increases. And by doing that, if you're looking at areas, for an example, you know, and you want to look at things like where Atlas van lines, right? Where, where are they moving, right? Where are people moving to? Basically, you're looking at your hot markets. I mean, you got you know, Arizona, you got Florida, you got Texas, you got Idaho, you got Tennessee, you got North Carolina, um, you got Utah. You got all these hot markets where basically what people are doing is they're basically, if you want to know where to move, very simple. Look at a major metro area. Find the nearest great school district within... 100 miles of that major metro area. So you're going to look at Los Angeles, for an example. You're going to look at where the greatest areas for schools. You're going to see a lot of great areas within 100 miles. It's the Temecula Murrieta area. You're going to look at a lot of great schools. You're going to see the Eastvale and Corona area. You're going to see Yorba Linda area. You're going to see Chino Hills area. You're going to go see the Irvine area, right? All of these major metro markets going right outside of it. You're going to look in San Diego. You're going to see the Vista area. You're going to see the Carlsbad area. You're going to see all these areas that have great schools within 100 miles of a major metro market. And these are the markets that are flourishing. And so one of the things I always like to go over is, okay, so you got two types of individuals out there. You got people that are buying as a first time home and you got people that are looking to buy as a rental property. So I was a flipper and I bought a lot of houses flipping them. And I have one of the biggest single regrets I've ever made in my life is selling all the houses that I flipped rather than keeping them. Um, if I would have kept houses, my net worth would probably be another three or $4 million higher than where it is today based on the whatever 20 flips that I sold rather than sitting there and holding them. And so one of the great ways that you can go ahead and you want to 
you know, Brian, I want to, I want to tap into this rental market, man. I got, I got some good equity in my house. You know, I, I believe you that rents are going to continue to go up. I can't believe that there's this many individuals that are reaching home buying age. There's no way we're going to have the supply of houses. We can't even build that number. I mean, we need to bring 2 million houses a year to the market for new construction just to like meet basic demands. And we're only going to bring 1.3 to 1.4 million houses to market over the next two years. And we're going to have not be able to bring these affordable houses. So I want to buy a rental house. Like, how can I do this? Or, or what can I do? Let me teach you some things. So the first thing you always want to look at is you need to understand that if you want to maximize your dollars for rent, people want a move in ready house. They want a house when they move in that it has the grays, the beautiful grays, the tan, like the, the taupe teller schemes, very light, very clean to be able to maximize market. So I'm going to give you a little trick and here's what you can do for something. So let's say you're going to look at a property and you're going to find yourself a property. I suggest finding a property that was built 70s, 80s, early 90s, hasn't been remodeled inside. Give you a case in point example. I found a house on Bolero Street in Riverside. The house was listed, you know, I bought it for 400 grand. The house purchased that property for 400 grand. It hadn't been remodeled since it was built in the 70s. Bought the house for 400 grand. Had the construction company, I go into it, go into the property and do about a $50,000 remodel on the house. Gutted the thing. Opened it up, did all these things. So now I'm into this property for 450,000 bucks. So I went in, in this case, bought the property for 400 grand you know, went in, I paid cash for this, but let's say you're going to put, you know, you're going to put 20% down. So you're going to go into that property. You're going to put 20% down, 80,000 bucks out of your pocket. Then you're going to go into that property and let's say you're going to put, you know, some money into the property. And let's say you're not going to mind. This one was a major need remodel. Say you're just going to go in and freshen up. You're going to go in and you're going to put in 15,000 bucks into this property out of your pocket. You're going to put in new paint, new carpet, paint the cabinets, you know, redo some basic bathrooms, 15 to 20 grand. So you're basically out of pocket, a hundred grand. You're like, Brian, well, how am I going to get that hundred grand? Well, one, you're going to do a cash out refinance on your house because your house is probably worth 600 grand on average here in, you know, Southern California, you know, and you only owe 300, you're going to pull out a hundred grand. You're going to take out a loan for 400,000 bucks. What you're going to do is you're then going to buy that house at 400 grand. You're going to put 20% down and you're going to use that other cash out you got and you're going to remodel the inside of that house. And now by remodeling the inside of that house, you're a hundred thousand dollars into this property and that house by remodeling it and cleaning it up, now, one, it's worth about 500,000 bucks because you really cleaned up and freshened it up. So you bought the house for 400, you put 20 grand into it and you got a good buy on the property and now it's worth high 400s to $500,000. And now what you're gonna do is, is once that house is completely dialed in, you're gonna refinance that property and you're gonna use what's called the Burr method. You basically, you know, you're gonna buy the property, you're gonna refinance the property, excuse me, you're gonna buy the property, rehab the property, refinance the property and repeat and do it again. So you're gonna get that house that you bought for 400, put 20 grand into it, and now it's worth 500,000 bucks. And you're gonna go into that property and you're gonna do a loan on that property. And now mind you, because you put 20% down, you only owe $320,000 on that property that you bought 400 grand. You're gonna do a cash out refinance on that property. It's worth 500,000 bucks. And you're gonna go ahead and you're gonna refinance it at 80% loan to value. And you're gonna get a loan for $400,000 on that property. And what you're gonna do is you're gonna pay off that loan at 320,000 bucks. And you're going to give yourself back that $80,000 down payment, right? Now you're going to have the $20,000 rehab cost that you're into that property, but no big deal. You got your 80 grand back. That 80 grand back, you got put it in your bank account. Why? Because you're going to use it again for another down payment. And then now on your new loan that you owe $400,000 on, your total mortgage payment, it's called about two grand a month for principal and interest, another 500 bucks per month for taxes and insurance. So your mortgage payment with taxes and insurance is $2,500 a month. So now you got your 80 grand back that you used for your original down payment. 
You're $20,000 out of pocket for your rehab costs. You have a property that's worth 500 grand and your total principal interest taxes insurance payments, 2,500 bucks a month. Now with that four bedroom, two bath property that I bought in Riverside that was just kind of a beater up, 400 grand, I put that baby up for rent and I thought I'd be lucky to get 2,800 bucks. I got $3,400 a month for rent on that property because, and I had 50 applications within 48 hours on that rental property. Signed a great two-year lease, increase of rent 7% per year. I got 3,400 bucks a month in that rent coming in. My mortgage payment that I'm gonna have on this one is I didn't quite pull up the 80% back out because I just didn't need it for the cash flow purposes. So what I did is I went ahead and put that property on a 15-year fixed mortgage. So that $3,400 a month in rent coming in, my total mortgage payment's like 2,900 bucks a month. I'm still cash flowing a couple hundred dollars a month. So what I did is, is the rent that's coming in on my property is completely paying my mortgage plus cash flowing. I got all my down payment back and all I'm into this property is for 20,000 bucks. Now, great, guess what? As rents continue to go up on that income property and I got a great tenant in there, that tenant is gonna sit there and it's gonna pay off my mortgage. My mortgage is gonna be paid off in 15 years, all paid off by that tenant. 15 years from now, be whatever, 54 years old, by the rents buying 15 years, probably about $4,500 a month. Now I got a $4,500 free and clear per month cash flow coming in on my property. Mind you, at the time, I am depreciating that asset by taking a nice tax deduction and it's a beautiful setup. So what the Burr method is, is you buy a property, you rehab that property with a little bit of your cash out of your pocket. Then you go ahead and you refinance that property to pull the act, pull the money back out to reimburse yourself for that down payment. And then you repeat it. Then I go in and I buy another property with that $80,000 down payment I have. I put that down payment down, go ahead and put that down payment down. Then I go ahead and refinance or rehab that property. Go ahead and, you know, even if you have to have a little home equity line of credit you use from or worst case scenario, you, you work with a contractor and say, you know, hey, when I refinance this house, I'll pay you back. You, you work on that relationship and you keep utilizing this and you can keep losing your money over and over again. And that's how you can basically build up a real estate portfolio with not having to always come up with 20% to put down on every single house. You can reuse that money over and over again. So how to find these properties is a couple different factors. One, you need to always look at a property that you can put sweat equity in it. You don't ever want to buy the best house on the block. And why do I rehab the properties rather than just putting rent? Because that way I can get top dollar for the rent. Because guess what? Millennials, that they, there's an affordable housing for them to buy. What do they want? They're willing to pay top dollar to be able to have to move into a nice, clean, bright, shiny new property. Why do you think all these apartment complex companies like Irvine Company, everything they put in is granite and whites and topes and all this because they can get market rents way, way high, right? So you go in and you buy from lumber liquidators flooring that's a buck fifty a square foot that looks really good. You go in and you basically go to Arizona Tile and you find some nice granite slabs that, you know, that they look great, but they're 50% off because, you know, they're the last cuts on a particular one and there's only two slabs. So you don't need a big ton of it because you don't have that big of a kitchen, right? And you utilize these things. And when you're analyzing an investment property, what's so important to do is you need to look at the market rents. And the great thing about market rents right now is you're going to get about 10% more than what the market rents are because of the mass, mass shortage of rental properties. And I'm not joking. And this isn't going to, you can't fix this anytime soon. So I always like to buy properties that are in really good school district areas or really close to a really good college because they're always going to be needed. So when you're looking at all the different metrics that are going to continue to fuel real estate. Remember this, it's demographics, right? How many individuals are coming to market? And as I told you, it's between 4.5 and 4.8 million individuals that are reaching home buying age every year for the next six years. We are only going to be bringing about 1.2 to 1.4 million houses to the market of new inventory. And what you have to understand about first time home buyers hitting the market is they are a plague in terms of what it does to inventory. Why is this? 
Because guess what? When my wife and I, we go to sell our property to buy another property, I am giving one item of inventory to the market and I'm taking one for a net result of zero, right? I'm going to sell my primary house. I'm going to buy a new primary house. So I'm giving something to the, the inventory and I'm taking something away resulting in a net positive of zero, right? There's no real inventory that's been lost because I gave one and I took one. Well, guess what a first time home buyer does? They only take one. They don't, they're not selling a house to give to inventory. They're just taking inventory off the market. And guess what? Those rental houses that they're moving out of or those apartments that are renting out of, those aren't coming to the market. No, there's so many renters out there that are dying for a house that they're living with their mom and dad right now and they're trying to do this. And so what is so important to understand is the supply that we are going to be experiencing is going to be kept down. Do I expect double-digit appreciation in all markets? No, I don't. I think that we're going to see a 5 to 8% appreciation in most major fringe markets with good school districts. But that combining with insane rental increases that we're going to see because a massive shortage of affordable housing makes real estate one of the greatest investments out there. So if you're interested in learning more about the Burr strategy, you guys can always find me on social at the Brian Decker, no underscores. I get a lot of spammers trying to pretend to be me. It's just on Instagram at the Brian Decker. Or you can always reach me on my email, decker at modernteam.com. But if you are sitting on a house with equity in it, let that equity create some generational wealth for you. Look at doing a cash out refinance. Look at buying yourself an investment property. Look at rehabbing that property a little bit, putting in a tenant, pulling back your investment, and then repeating it. This is a great, great strategy. And next week, I'll be bringing the fire once again. Thank you so much for tuning in with Dollars with Decker right here on The Answer AM 590.